said that everyone loves a good debate but if I were to ask you to identify for me the top 10 debates that have taken place within the context of modern history could you do it I'm not going to try to identify all 10 for you that's not our purpose today but I find fascinating the way historians classify the great debates that have taken place over time Certainly, the, the debate between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen A. Douglas, 1858, would be named by most people as one of the top ten of all time. Held in seven rounds throughout the state of Illinois, Lincoln solidified his position as an abolitionist, arguing that slavery was not in the best interest of the country. Douglas, of course, argued otherwise. In the end, historians agreed that though Lincoln, the Republican candidate, would go on to lose the state election, his rhetorical skills gave him the upper hand to Douglas, solidifying him as a future power to contend with. 1948, another great debate. This one between Frederick Copleston and Bertrand Russell. I don't know if you remember the topic, but at, at issue was the existence of God. Copleston, if you might recall, a Jesuit priest spoke to and for God's existence. Russell, an atheist, spoke against the existence of any God. Now, historians are actually split on the outcome of the debate. It's suggested that perhaps Russell won the war of words. It's not to insinuate that points earned on his side reflect in any way the actual case for the existence of God. In fact, this is a debate I like to say that will be settled once and for all on the day of resurrection. Then, 1968, the debate between the writer Gore Vidal, and conservative columnist William F. Buckley, Jr. This debate took place within the context of, if you remember with me, political conventions happening at the time. Buckley represented the conservatives of that era, and his free market anti-government ideas were popular in that time. With the passing of time, it does seem that the more liberal ideas held by Vidal have prevailed. Buckley could not even have begun to imagine an America in which same-sex marriages might be granted legal status or abortion rights become an issue that politicians would actually build platforms on. Great debates. They're fun to be part of. They're interesting to learn from, which is why I set them before you today. In today's God-Sized Living podcast, my, my goal is to just continue forward with you into our look at the beginning of First Peter. Uh, as I've said over the last couple of sessions, I believe that there's hardly another book in the Bible more relevant for the times in which we live today. And I say that because First Peter represents a book written to Christians living in a culture that would reject many of what the Bible teaches, instead coming to persecute followers of Jesus for their faith. I think that's just true in our culture today. I say this today on a week in which the issue of debate is on the ballot, so to speak, in many states electing individuals to fill seats in the Senate and House of Representatives, while several states have created laws intended to protect the lives of the unborn. Our nation as a whole is pushed back hard. To be seen at many of the elections taking place this week are signs that read, get your rosaries off our ovaries. In other words, get your Bibles out of our faces and away from our lives. Christianity, or maybe I should say the teachings of the Bible, once dominant in America, are today a nuisance to the way people 
many people in our culture want to live. So the question is, how, how are Christians to live in a culture that rejects much of the Bible? I don't think you can get more relevant than first and second Peter. So let me take you back to the point we left off last week. Two weeks ago, we began our study, recognizing that this book, first Peter is being written during a period where the persecution of Christians in Rome is beginning to ramp up. We're 64 AD. Rome has suffered its most significant fire in history. Someone must pay for it. As Nero, Rome's emperor at the time, considers his options, he lands upon an idea. Blame the Christians. Just blame the Christians for setting the fires. This would, of course, take the attention of Rome's public, which did not like Nero, off of the emperor and place it upon Christianity as a scapegoat without question. The Rome in which Christians lived during the reception of 1 Peter was a hard place to live. Accordingly, there arise two questions. Number one, where, where is God when times are terrible? Number two, how are his people supposed to live? Now, in, in our study, we're at the beginning of the book. What we've noticed is the fact that Peter wastes no time in declaring that God is not absent during this horrific time. No, he's very much present with his people. Secondly, we've noticed that the very first part of verse Peter is meant to indicate to the Christians that God has placed them with intentionality into this period of history for the sake of his kingdom. If we could hear this from the perspective of God's voice, it might sound something like this. Yes, I'm with you. And yes, I have intentionally placed you into this difficult setting on purpose to be, that is to function as my church in this time. So today I want to pick up on one more word from our scripture, the, the opening of First Peter, that I, I really do believe makes a difference in our understanding of who we are today as a body of people living in a culture that like, like Peter's stood as antagonistic toward Christians. The word is foreknowledge. I'm going to say it again, for knowledge. Just, look, just listen for it here in Peter's opening words. I'm going to read uh, again the very first part of First Peter. Let's just pray, Lord, would you guide, would you guide us in this scripture? Okay, here we go. This is First uh, Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, the scattering in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to this is the word that I want you to hear according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, in last week's session, we talked about the fact that before time even began, God saw you and me and determined, we did not determine, he did, both when we would live and where we would live. You, you are where you are today. Not, not by accident, but by design. Today, I want to add again this, this additional word. It answers, I believe, the question, why me? Why you? And, and the word that we're thinking about, again, is the word foreknowledge. Just listen to it one more time. Quote, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. What does that mean? Here's what I want you to think about today. Do you recognize that you are who you are today? Namely, a follower of Jesus. Not because you chose to be. I have decided to follow Jesus, but because he chose you. What Peter is talking about as he addresses the Jesus followers of his time is this fact that we're living in the time that we're in and the place we're in and are who we are all because of one thing, foreknowledge. 
God determined it before the world began. Now, in theology, we have a word that we use for this, and the word is predestination. Oh, and speaking of great debates, I believe that this topic is one of the most debated of any in the church. So today, let's look at the question of predestination or foreknowledge as it relates to who we are as Jesus followers living in a time much like the one the first hearers of this book, 1 Peter, were living in. Now, as we think about our scripture today, I'm, I'm actually taken back in time to a debate that happened long ago, a debate between two theological heavyweights on one side of the ring, Martin Luther, and on the other side of the ring, Desiderius Erasmus. Remember with me that Erasmus was a Dutch Catholic theologian living at the same time as Luther through what is today called the Reformation period. Within the Catholic tradition, Erasmus was considered a preeminent theologian, writing vast numbers of books, essays, and even as Luther did, preparing a Greek edition of the New Testament. When it came to the topic of how we become Christians, followers of Jesus, Erasmus was a classic synergist, insisting on free will as the causative factor on the side of men for our salvation. In his book on free will, Erasmus sought to demonstrate the synergistic and almost symbiotic relationship between the work of the Spirit, God, and the flesh, the will of men. These two, Erasmus would suggest, work in tandem together to lead to that moment in time when a person would gain faith, become a follower of Jesus Christ. Luther disagreed. In December 1525, Luther, in response to Erasmus's book on free will, wrote his own. He titled his book, Bondage of the Will. It's difficult to read, but to this day, I encourage individuals to make study of this classic Luther text, as it has a theological depth to it that is hard to duplicate, especially in our, our world today. In his book, Luther incites a debate with Erasmus, arguing that people come to faith and achieve salvation or redemption only through God. It is his theological conviction that original sin incapacitates human beings from working out their own salvation. He states, man is not capable, even synergistically, of working together with the Spirit or bringing themselves to God. Luther's view is based upon classic scriptures, including Paul's words to the church in Rome, the very church that Peter is writing to the book Romans chapter 8 maybe you remember these words I'll, I'll read from Romans chapter 8 verses 28 to 30 as Paul describes foreknowledge he uses these words he says quote and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom listen for it for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to conform to the image of his son in order that he might be called the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So as you read and hear these words, I want you to hear who the agent or actor is, who is the doer. Inarguably, it's God. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. God knew you before the world was begun, and he predestined you. That is, he determined your destiny and your destination. In this case, your destiny being to follow him, 
in living out the works that he has also prepared for you before the world began. And your destination, temporarily, the place he has led you to, to this day. Ultimately, eternity. He is the doer. So, so when I ask you, how did you become a follower of Jesus? You might point me to your baptism or a time in which through the word you were converted to follow Jesus. You are pointing me to that temporal moment when what God already accomplished, think preterately here, in eternity, prior to earth's creation, is carried out in time. Bottom line, how did you become a follower of Jesus? God determined it and God did it. So let's ask this. How does this square with views held by other church bodies? Allow me to walk through this with you. I want to simplify this without meaning to be overly simple. I find that in our world of theology today, Luther's view on predestination, a view upheld in conservative confessional Lutheranism today, think LCMS, Wisconsin Synods, the idea of predestination is not held by the majority of the American and Western church. Instead, most American theologies are more Erasmusan than Lutheran. We're predominantly a free will country when it comes to the topic of how we become who we are. Much of the theological world today would suggest that God offers salvation to all, but only some choose to accept his offer. The choice is men's. One can choose or deny the gift of salvation, which was one on the cross. It sounds good, but there's a problem with the core of this theology. You know where we find the flaw? Not only in passages like Romans 8, which we just read, which named God as the actor and cause agent of our salvation, but also in passages like Ephesians 2, chapter 4, which again clearly names God as the actor in our salvation. Remember these words with me. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning verse 4, Paul writes, quote, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of work, so that no man may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Though we live in a culture, a nation built upon the concept of meritocracy and freedom, such are antithetical, actually, to Scripture. Apart from Erasmusian theology, there are other iterations of Luther's predestination theology. Are you familiar with the concept of double predestination? A view held within Presbyterian, Reformed, and Congregational tribes. This view suggests that, well, if God predestines some to salvation, then he must also predestine others to hell. In other words, he, God is the actor, both regarding salvation and damnation. This, by the way, is not what Luther taught. Luther taught that while God is the sole actor in bringing us to faith, he has given man the capacity to reject him. Luther would teach that those who reject Jesus do so by their own accord or will. So bondage of the will suggests that we are bound in the sense that we are unable to choose God. Freedom of the will exists when it comes to pushing God away. What's the problem with double predestination? Just one scripture, 1 Timothy 2, 4. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God cannot desire all men to be saved and then from eternity condemn some of them to hell. That doesn't work. So let's ask this. What does it even matter? What is, what is Peter trying to say 
in his use of this word predestined in the opening of first Peter allow three words the words are position point and posture position I really do believe that the first thing Peter's seeking to underscore is the fact that God has positioned his church in Rome at this time for a very specific purpose namely that of bringing the gospel to a culture ensnared in mythology that's Rome he God has positioned his church in Rome even if it has meant doing so during a tumultuous and difficult time. Peter is asking his hearers to embrace the place in history that God has given them and know that will not be easy. I think of it this way. There are epochs, periods of history, into which I would, if it were up to me, rather not have been born into. Who would want to be born into that period of history devastated by the Black Plague, 1347 to 1351? The medical sciences that we have in place today did not exist then. Untold millions of people died in just the first wave of the plague. It's one of the scariest periods of history on earth. Yet babies were born. Families remained active. The church was called on by God to bring the only hope that might bring people through this difficult time, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about what it might have meant to be alive and living in Germany during that period in which Chancellor Adolf Hitler gained power in 1933. Recently saw an old photograph taken at a Lutheran seminary in Germany during this period. The photo showed a freshly minted group of ministers ready to take up their calling in area churches. The problem, none of them could subscribe to the mandates Hitler had placed upon the church as a measure of silencing criticisms that might be leveled at him. With the photograph came the note that every student seen smiling in the picture would lose their lives to Hitler. Would you want to be born into a period like that? You know what? I could go on, couldn't I? As followers of Jesus, would you want to be born in China at the time of Mao Zedong, 1943? How many millions died for professing their faith? Who would want to be born into that period marked by the Spanish flu, 1918? No, thank you. The reality is every period has its challenges, especially for those who follow Jesus. It is why not we, but he positions us in history where he wants us to serve. The biblical writer Solomon is right. There's a time to be born and a time to die. Guess what? God chooses both of those times. So it is that we, the church living in the West today, find ourselves living in a difficult time. Not only are we experiencing the imbalance of nature's resources, spoken to in the Revelation chapter 4, but we are living in a time where the earth itself is crying out in the pangs of childbirth through disaster upon disaster. We live in a period of chronic disaster. Oh, and as far as plagues, how about the Chinese manufactured COVID virus released in Earth's population? We know pandemics in the time frame that we are part of today, perhaps more difficult, has been the shift of Western culture away from its Christian roots. We're living in a time during which the core beliefs of Scripture have been rejected. To stand up for what one believes on the basis of Scripture in our world today is to draw disdain and, yes, even forms of persecution. Even within the church, many have abandoned the understanding that God created the earth and all that is in it, the understanding that God is the author of marriage and he designed it for one man and one woman, the understanding that we are created purposely man and woman, <clears throat> the entire transgender moment flies in the face of God's design. The understanding that the rainbow is God's symbol, a promise that never again shall there be a flood to eradicate the sinfulness of men. To turn the rainbow into a symbol in support of 
abominations is simply put blasphemy. And the list goes on and on. In our post-Christian world, there's no doubt but that the Bible and Bible-believing churches stand out as an anomaly. Will there be pers- pushback? Will there be persecution? Y- yes, there will. Is it uncomfortable to be that voice in our circles, including our own families, that stands firm on God's word? Yeah, it is. Yet this is exactly where God has positioned you and me. What Peter is saying to the church in Rome and the church in the West today is very simply this. You were made for such a time as this. Rather than bemoan the day, let the church embrace it as an opportunity to be light in the darkness. Peter starts with position. And then he points. He points the church to her calling. Why has God positioned us in this time frame? He's placed us where we are in our cities, states, neighborhoods, and households to carry out the greatest call on earth. As you're going about, Jesus said, be making disciples. That's why we're here. Don't forget your call, but we do. It's easy to forget why we're here. Not for ourselves, but for others, for those who don't know Jesus. You know why it's easy to forget our call? Because the world is constantly calling us elsewhere. When we're little children, our culture asked us the question, what do you want to be? When you grow up, after all, the American system is built on meritocracy and upward movement, not our call from God. Are the two mutually conflictual? Not necessarily, yet often they are. After all, the call of the world is to pursue our dream, our goals, and so we do. We set out to find ourselves not according to the will of God, but according to the gospel of the West. Before we know it, we wear ourselves out, seeking that which cannot, because it's not designed to fill us up. And then the word appears, predestined. We see it and we think, what in the world is that? What does that mean? In a free will world, the word seems out of place, if not contradictory to our way of life. Do you mean God sets in place our calling? That he's determined such from prior to creation? Don't I determine who I am? What I want out of life? I want to control things that I pursue. Then Peter appears and says, (laughs) what about God's call for your life? What Peter is doing for his hearers and for you and me is helping us see first position. God set us in this place currently and then call. And he's given us a very specific call as you are going about be making disciples. But what if I like neither? I don't want to live in this frame of time. And and I, I don't like the call God's placed on me, especially if it means interacting with the very people that are at odds with me or even hate me, the ones persecuting me. Once again, See what Peter is doing. He's pointing us back to our calling. He's reminding us that our purpose in life, if not aligned with God's, will leave us empty. Peter is positioning the church. He's pointing the church to her call, and he is posturing the church. This might be the most difficult thing of all. What God knows as he writes this letter, First and Second Peter to the church, is the fact that there will be blood. Lots of it. The blood of these hearers will be spilt in the streets of Rome during one of the worst episodes of persecution in human history. Given this, it would be easy for the church to become bitter and even hateful toward her persecutors. You cannot have your wife taken from you, abused and then killed, and not be filled with indignation, rage, and even hatred. Don't believe me? Then you're not paying attention. Just watch 10 minutes of footage out of Israel today. The acts of Hamas against the people of Israel are inhuman. Who laughs as they cut off the head of a little baby and toss its body aside as though it were a piece of trash? Should Israel as a state respond the way that it is with the sword? Absolutely. 
This is the reason that God has created the sword of governments. Look at Romans 13. You'll see it. But that said, what should spiritual Israel's posture be towards its persecutors? Even as the government plays its proper and biblical role of response, there should be, must be, prayers for those who persecute. And yes, I know that's hard to hear. It is. Listen, I've watched footage from October 7th, the attack of Hamas. It is stomach-churning. Is there part of me that wants to pray? Yeah, I'll pray for you. Lord God, send them all to hell. Of course there is. My old self is at heart, retributive. Then Peter's word, predestined. What have I been set apart for? What cause God given me? That I should seek out the salvation of every soul. Yes, even those that mean me harm. Posture yourself, Peter would say, as a people who know grace of people who know redemption, who know restoration, and pray that the Lord might use you to seek such, even for those who harm you. Can I close today by simply saying this book that we will make our way through, First, Second Peter, is not easy to read. Not because its words are hard. No, the grammar and syntax are clear and straightforward, but its call upon us is hard. Hard, but so relevant for the time into which we have been placed and positioned. Well, that's all for this episode. It's almost Thanksgiving, so we'll be off the next two weeks in the back to continue our journey. I want to lift up special prayers for you and your family for Thanksgiving, and I have a God-sized week. <music>